This is our time to shine. I hope you're feeling ready. So everybody in the house start getting busy. Just like the wave, not the stop us when we start moving. So everybody wake up, get down with the movement. I'm about to raise the roof, spitting some truth. If you're a youth, what I'm about to say is directed to you. Yeah, the young ones living in your prime. Open up your eyes, it's your time to shine. Check it, you have the powers that can bring about change. They can also bring pain, homie, let me explain. Think about our generation. What is our purpose? Why were all of us created? What should we worship? Media and marketeers trying to trick your brain. They'll have you living a lie if you ain't on your game. Sleepwalking from the womb to the tomb. Got the world thinking that our generation is doomed. So wake up, wake up, get down with the movement. We calling all youth. Help us make an improvement. Let's use our powers for good. Let's change society. Come on and join us. Let's build a spiritual dynasty. This is our time to shine. I hope you're feeling ready. So everybody in the house start getting busy. Just like the wave, no they cast the us we start moving. So everybody Wake up, get down with the movement, get down with the movement, calling all you, get down with the movement, calling all you, get down with the movement, calling all you, get down, 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 down. We're talking to you. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am excited about this new segment on Conversations. It's Spotlight on Youth Activism, and I am thrilled to have two of the great ocean protectors young people that are doing more than you can possibly imagine, and we're gonna be talking to them today. I have Chloe Dubois, she's the president and founding member of the Ocean Legacy Foundation, an integrative program where ocean plastics are monetized, plastic pollution concentration zones are clean, innovative technologies are built to collect and process plastic, policy gaps are addressed, and crucial tools for education and awareness are facilitated. These tools create a leading holistic approach called EPIC, which we're gonna be talking about to prevent pollution from occurring while responding to the plastic pollution currently littering our natural environment. Welcome, Chloe. Also joining us today is Lily Woodbury, and she is the chapter manager of Surfrider Foundation Pacific Rim. And upon graduating from the University of Toronto, she began volunteering for Surfrider Foundation, but took a job with Greenpeace in New Zealand until being offered the staff role of chapter manager for Surfrider Pacific Rim. She has now been the chapter manager for this organization since spring of 2017, and their mission is the protection and enjoyment of the oceans, beaches, and waves. Surfrider's Pacific Rim's current focus is eliminating single-use plastic, implementing circular recycling practices for petroleum products, and working with youth, the public, government, and businesses in taking positive action for our coastlines. So welcome, Lily. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. What a delight, and you're so inspiring. I'm just so thrilled to have you here. So Let's just first talk a little bit about your organization. So Lily, tell us a little bit about Surf Riders and what you do on a global basis. You have a lot of chapters. Yeah, that's right. So Surf Rider Foundation was started in 1984 by surfers in California and Malibu who were eager to protect their surf break from development. And so it started there and then it uh, just grew and grew and grew in the US. And now there's a whole chapter network of 84 chapters, uh, 81 in the States and three here in Canada. And then we also have affiliates in Brazil, Japan, Australia, and Europe. So it's definitely a global organization. Our focus is split up into clean water, 
coastal preservation, ocean protection, plastic pollution, and beach access. So that's definitely very, very broad, very broad uh, focus areas. But what's great is that since it's all local chapters, we get to work on what's most pertinent in our local areas. So for some places, they might be dealing with water pollution more. Others are dealing with plastic pollution more. Some might be dealing with offshore oil drilling. So it really depends on what's happening in your area and you can really localize it, which I think is really great. We also have the freedom to develop our own campaigns and programs and then be able to share our resources throughout the network. So it's a really, really great system in that sense where we just have kind of nodes all over working together and learning together. Wow. And is it mostly youth run or youth activism or is it even old people like me? It's all people. It's all people of all ages. And that's what I really love about it. It really works to be inclusive because what it, what it's for is ocean people who are using the ocean for ocean recreators. And so it is people of all ages who live by the ocean, who love the ocean, who visit the ocean. It's for everyone. Uh, with that being said, there is this really strong youth component. There's the Surfrider Youth Clubs where basically schools, high schools and universities will set up Surfrider clubs. And so again, they'll work on those similar campaigns and programs within their schools and communities. And they are definitely a force to be reckoned with. And mm. a big part of this shift that needs to happen is making change within institutions. So in that sense, yeah, youth are a really big part of what Surfrider does. Wow, that's awesome. Surfrider, God, I had to start with surfing somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're you're acting locally and thinking globally. I love that. That's right. Such an important thing, and and there are so many different issues. And another person working on these issues is Chloe Dubois. Chloe is the president and the founding member of the Ocean Legacy Foundation, an integrative program where ocean plastics are monetized, plastic pollution concentration zones are cleaned, innovative technologies are built to collect and process plastic policy gaps and addressed, and crucial tools for education and awareness are facilitated. These tools create a leading holistic approach called EPIC to prevent pollution from occurring while responding to the plastic pollution currently littering our natural environment. So welcome, Chloe Dubois. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome, I'm so glad you're gonna be off to Panama, I think, like in hours. <laughs> a day, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you're yep. pretty active. So talk about, you know, you founded the Ocean Legacy Foundation. What was your vision and your dream and how's it been playing out? Great questions. Um, I think the vision really was how do we create a movement behind oceans and ocean preservation and how do we bring people together around reconnecting with the natural environment again and caring um, and so ocean legacy really started with um, an online mapping tool that no matter where you were in the world people could report uh, gps coordinates pictures stories about plastic pollution occurring in their community and then we also had a, an overlaying directory um, where we had about 14 different categories, uh, science, art, you know, so many different, such a broad array of industries coming together. And so people could see who was doing what in the world, what they were doing to address plastic pollution, whether it was science, policy, what have you. 
um, and then overlaying that on top of plastic pollution hotspots so that we could identify communities or areas that had um, activity happening to address plastic pollution, which allowed us the tools to address uh, communities and areas that had gaps um, to address plastic pollution. Because the last thing I think all of us in this movement want to do is start, uh, start to recreate um, the wheel. So I think it's kind of a common thread in nonprofit in general that a lot of resources are duplicated or wasted. So it was, it was a way to really bring people together around addressing this plastic pollution crisis that you know, we as a humanity and as a natural planet are facing, and then really come up with solutions that are tailored to specific communities and specific natural environments that can create long-term lasting change. I know a lot of our listeners are fairly well informed, but I don't think most people get the epic, I use that word, that's a funny choice of words since you're epic. That's the idea. (laughs) But epic proportions and the impact on our lives of uh, plastics in the ocean, plastics in our world. Maybe you could just talk about that. and, And then I know Lily's also working on a lot of plastic initiatives and things. Yeah, and Lily and I actually work a lot together on on policy um, policy initiatives as well as cleanup, and hopefully in the future some infrastructure development. But um, I mean, yeah, and Lily can talk more about this too. But plastic pollution is a global crisis. It's one of the largest issues facing humanity right now in terms of wasting plastics and the additional carbon that's required to replace those plastics. And that's really a key message in all of this is to create that circular economy. I I really look to nature for a lot of my teachings Mm -hmm. and nature teaches us that we need to be working in circular systems. In nature, there is no such thing as garbage and there's no such thing as waste. And I, I feel that that really is a key point to take away from this conversation today is how do we create systems that eliminate the, the whole concept of garbage and, and how do we actually implement that sustainably in our communities. Some of the communities that we've visited, I mean, some of the, the plastic piles are up to your chin and 17 kilometers long. And these are really the areas that we need to be addressing. I mean, 80% of the plastic uh, that's entering the ocean is estimated to be land-based. And a lot of the the microplastics that we're finding are fragments of larger items. So it's really about, you know, creating the policies. It's epic. So we need that education. We need to be integrating the policy um, in combination with creating land-based collection systems and infrastructure to capture those materials before they can reach the natural ecosystems. But unfortunately, plastics do escape, as we've seen commonly around the world. So we do need that aspect of cleanup until cleanup is no longer necessary. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love circulating systems and he didn't use the word, but biomimicry, looking to nature. Mm, How would nature do it basically is the question. And we just don't think that way generally in a whole systems way. So Lily, let's pick up that conversation a little more because you work a lot with plastic and plastic cleanup and on beaches and many people don't realize that we're finding uh plastic you know uh in our in our fish uh that it's showing up in the fish and that we've lost i think 95 percent of all large fish in the ocean 
I would call that a crisis, yet nobody's talking about that. What are your thoughts around that and how are surf riders helping assist in, in, in the shift? Yeah, it's a great question. People are starting to realize that this is a crisis. It has been for a long time, but I think in the last five years, things have really taken a shift. It's such a visual problem. And I think with the aid of, of social media and mass communication, this problem has just become on the, has become to the forefront of everyone's minds. When I went to university, I didn't have one course on plastic pollution, no instruction about it, not even one lecture, which is mind blowing because only a year and a half later, this became my entire focus. And that kind of seems like when the whole world kind of figured it out of what was going on. And so as you say, plastic pollution is impacting every life form. And I think a lot of people are very disconnected from nature. So when they see photos or they hear about the stats about fish and wildlife, it doesn't hit home as much. But the truth is, is that plastic pollution impacts our own bodies. You know, a recent report has said that we're all eating up to a credit card of plastic every week, which is astonishing through the foods that we're eating, through bottled water, through other uh, types of food that are packaged in plastic. And we don't even know the full effects of this yet. You know, it's still so new. And so, of course, the precautionary principles should apply that we need to absolutely address this, our whole relationship with plastics. And as Chloe said, come back to a circular management of this material. Mm -hmm. And so the different ways that Surfrider is working on this, we're most well known for our beach cleanups. Again, this is the most visual thing we do, but they're really just one part of a whole system. So with the cleanups that we do, and similar to Ocean Legacy, we're able to not only restore shorelines, but collect really uh, integral data for being able to inform campaigns, uh, inform programs that can address the roots of this issue. You know, we're able to see where is this issue staying stuck. And so, yeah, on our cleanups, we're able to see, you know, how many single-use plastics, how much is coming from fishing and aquaculture, you know, how much has come from spills from shipping. So from all of that, like I said, we're able to come up with different policy amendments and mechanisms, uh, campaigns to eliminate single-use plastics, programs to educate youth, uh, programs and campaigns to work with the commercial sector. And so through all of that, again, our goal is to make cleanups obsolete. That's our ultimate goal here, because there's too much plastic going into the oceans in the time that we can take to clean it up. So it's, it's pretty wild. What would we do? We'd have to play and surf and hang out on the beach and, and swim? Instead of picking up plastics. That's why I love the Surfrider mission, because it's the protection and enjoyment of the ocean beaches and waves. I, know, I love so that. If we solve everything, we just get to enjoy. And steward. Steward is a, is a responsibility that will forever be ongoing. You know, like Chloe said, when we're acting in accordance with nature, we're actively co-creators of those systems. And that's always going to be an ongoing responsibility. So ideally, we'll get to that place, but we sure have a lot of work to do. Chloe, would you break down the four components of the EPIC program and a little bit about how you deliver deliver them and what your job is in Ocean Legacy? Sure. Um, so breaking down EPIC, it, it's really the, the four letters, four components that are integrated. So we start with education. Um, with knowledge comes power and with power we're able to act. And part of the core of Ocean Legacy is action. Um, we in this sector we hear a lot of talk about plastics a lot about what we should be doing and ocean legacy as well as surf, surf rider we spend a lot of time taking that and then acting on it <laughs> 
So I think that's why people love getting engaged with these organizations is because they feel empowered to be able to take some charge and to create change in their lives. People are so overwhelmed with the enormity of the problem that they don't do anything. And, and what I love about the work you're doing, anybody can make a difference and jump in and participate. Yeah, and it's really learning about the issue that, I mean, inspired me to want to do something about it. And I think that's the same for a lot of people that are just unaware of really what's going on. Once we learn about those issues, it does feel <laughs> overwhelming. Um, and I think it's that overwhelming fear of what humanity is facing. I mean, we're entering the next sixth extinction with biodiversity loss and species loss and climate change. And, you know, that overwhelming change that's happening, I think it cripples a lot of people in their action. And then we get a lot of hopelessness or a lot of stagnation because I feel like people then get to a point where they really question if the actions they could take will really make a difference. And so the answer is definitely yes. Like every small action attributes to the puzzle and attributes to the movement and creates change. And I think once we start acting through that education and that knowledge piece, that's when people fill their lungs with that courage and they feel the strength to, you know, empower their lives to create those changes. And there's community around that too. So I think that really is what encapsulates the education component. And we work a lot with different organizations with education as well. I actually was just speaking with Joel Harper, who's based down in California. And I got this yesterday in the mail, but this is what we're bringing down to Panama with us tomorrow. It's called De Camino al Oceano. It's basically a Spanish book, a Spanish cartoon book for youth. The Road of the Ocean. Exactly, yes. It's a, an entire story developed to teach kids about, just as the picture says here, like kids throwing a piece of plastic into the sewer. And it's the, the story and the journey about what happens to that piece of plastic. And obviously it ends up in the ocean and teaches people really about the effects of what's going on. So this is just sort of one tool in a partnership that we're taking to another country to, to continue that education and teach people around the world about the issues and what's going on. The, the next component is policy. This is an imperative component because the, one of the reasons why we're in this situation is the lack of political will. The surfriders of the world, the ocean legacies of the world, there's so many organizations right now working together and collecting really valuable data that can be used to influence policy. We're looking at a polluter's pay principle pretty heavily enforced in Canada, and that includes the extended producer responsibility, where the onus of paying for pollution is put on the producer. Um, but in, in terms of marine debris, there's a very significant loophole here where we get these plastics that fragment. Those fragments or those labels come off um, for the composition of marine debris, and then those items can no longer be identified. So this creates this loophole where we have a bunch of producers saying, you can't prove it's mine, <laughs> and no funding to actually do the cleanup. And you get you know, thousands of tons of this material slipping through the cracks. So this is just an example of the policy that in the near future, we're hoping to address and to change in Canada specifically. But you know, working under the, the, the guidelines of what's been going on in the EU, 
um, taking those, you know, the plastics directive, taking that back to Canada as well, and helping to inspire other governments in other countries that this is, these changes are possible to do in government. And then really helping an advisory committee within Ocean Legacy to, to support governments in other countries that they can do something similar. And these are the success stories and um, helping almost tailor policy to specific um, community needs. So that's sort of what encapsulates in our policy component. The next component is infrastructure development, which is incredibly crucial to actually be creating the systems needed to capture those land-based materials. The infrastructure component can be anything from collection to creating the grinders and the actual machines to process the plastic to extrusion. We have, and, and Surfrider participates in, in the Canadian program where we've got one of the largest scale uh, marine debris collection programs and processing programs in, in North America at this point. We've already processed more than 100 tons of ocean plastics that have, each piece has been collected by hand somewhere by a volunteer uh, across the province at this point. So it's a really unique program and we're hoping to replicate this in other countries to really again listen. I think listening is the forgotten art of international development. This is a really crucial component where, I mean, the communities that we're often trying to, to help as our Western development mind are left out of the initial conversation entirely. And this is so problematic to the long-term success and to actually be meeting the needs of an ever-changing community and, and natural environment. Really for the infrastructure development, that's what we're looking at is like listening and and identifying those community leaders that want to be creating change in their community and how do we help create the tools to do that. And then the last component is cleanup. This basically gives people a hands-on chance, a hands-on experience in physically removing debris from their natural environment. So that could look anything from shoreline rehabilitation to ditches along an urban center. It's, it's really removing those materials from that environment so that they can no longer photodegrade and fragment into smaller pieces, which will lead to ingestion via other animals or, you know, toxic pollution that uh, absorbs pers persistent organic pollutants and ends up in the stomachs of your child. <laughs> so this, this is really to address this hands-on. And I feel, and, and Lily can probably attest to this, is it's, the most, it's one of the most inspiring components of the work. You know, people want to get their hands dirty. That action piece, uh, it feels like you're creating change and you can visibly see the effects almost instantaneously from an area that's completely polluted and removing those that pollution you can see that and, and you can see the results of that right away so mm, beautiful thank you so much yeah and lily you have a lot of people that get their hands dirty 81 chapters <laughs> and 85 youth groups talk about how to be involved in the club and growing and what's happening with surf rider around the world <laughs> that's a big question so with youth groups just find out if your school university has one. If you don't, you can most likely start one. There's just continuing to grow. There's over a hundred youth clubs in the U.S. and a few here in Canada. And so I would just encourage people to look it up, learn more about it and see how they can implement it in their own school and get in touch. You know, that being said, 
I think if people don't have the capacity to take on a full club or full chapter, anyone can lead a cleanup and lead a campaign within their community and the institution that they're learning under. And I would really encourage them to do that. And as Chloe was saying, we don't want people to have to duplicate resources. So there's tons of information that Surfrider has, that Ocean Legacy has, for people to be executing their own cleanups for people to be leading their own campaigns in their schools, learning from everything that we've learned along the way. One thing that Surfrider has recently launched is the hashtag five minute beach cleanup initiative. Our beach is here in the Pacific Rim. We do cleanups here, but also in Clackwood Sound and Barkley Sound. And it's the local areas we used to focus on a lot, but as people become more aware of this issue, people, the local beaches are in immaculate shape. They are incredible. And that's from everyone working together. And so now we're turning our focus more to remote areas and we've put signage up in the local ones, encouraging people to do the hashtag five minute beach clean. So that every time you're going to the beach, you're stewarding it, you're removing pollution. And as Chloe mentioned, you're able to see that, that impact right away, see the results right away. And then what we get is a continuously clean beach, which is, which is fantastic. And it's less fossil fuels used because you're going there anyways. And then again, we can continue to focus our efforts in more of the remote regions. Because again, the more remote it is, the more it's collecting because no one's frequenting those areas. So we just did a cleanup in the Broken Group Islands in Barkley Sound. And in just six kilometers of coastline, we collected 3.5 tons of marine debris. And so that is such a small portion of the coastline, but a mountain of pollution. And so what we're saying to our provincial government, what we're saying to our our federal government is that, you know, this is not sustainable. We can't clean our way out of this crisis. Six kilometers in BC's 25,000 kilometer coastline. And so, yeah, it's imperative to do all these cleanups and get people tapping into it as much as possible. And as Chloe said too, the more we can get people on board to join them, the more likely they're going to be to make changes in their own lives, which is important, but equally as important is getting people to, in whatever way that they can, be able to address systemic change at the level of government, industry, and institutions, and the commercial sectors. And so that is also really important. And I think that's what's shifting within Surfrider as well. I think neoliberalism has really tricked us all into thinking that the environmental crisis is our individual faults. To make all these changes in your personal lifestyle, you know, that's what's going to save the world. And I think there's a definite truth to that, that what we're able to do as individuals does have a massive impact. It all accumulates, especially in regards to plastic. But when you think about the fact that 70% of the pollution in the world is coming from 100 different companies, we really also need to shift our focus to saying, you know, it's not individuals who are at blame. We need to work to change the systems that we're under and that we're a part of. And I think that's a really important message that we need to get out there right now as we work to solve the climate crisis, the plastic pollution crisis, which again is just a different face of the same problem. Exactly. Wow, 70% of the pollution comes from 100 companies. Yep. And so I think that's a really, it's an important part. And that's, yeah, our shift is that is like focusing on the self, but also focusing on, on those systems. Now, Surfrider focuses on five key areas. You want to go over the five areas that you guys are, are focused on in Surfrider? Yeah, sure. 
So first is, is beach access. And luckily we don't have too many issues here in Canada with this or not as much as, as the States, but in the States, a lot of areas will become privatized and then the public don't have access to the ocean beaches and waves. And when you think about it, you know, no one owns the ocean, no one owns um, the beaches. Everyone should have equitable access to these spaces to enjoy and again to steward. You know, furthermore, all of the land in the US and Canada is Indigenous land. So if it is going to be privatized or made public, that should always be in consultation with the nations whose land it's on. So this form of privatizing land is just another form of, of colonialism, essentially. There's a lot of chapters in the states who will work on cases to combat that privatization of land and ensure that there's beach access, you know, intermittently throughout coastal areas. So that's, that's beach access. Another one is coastal preservation. And this is a really broad area. What falls under this is a lot of work on development. So again, not so much in Canada, but more so in the US, there's a lot of infrastructure being built way too close to the ocean. And now with rising sea levels, a lot of that infrastructure is eroding because it's so close to the oceans, it's further creating greater erosion of, of those beaches. And so what a lot of uh, chapters are working on is managed retreat to move that infrastructure, move that infrastructure back. Included in this is other projects like more business and industrial projects that are getting built way too close to the ocean. So seeing that that is all managed well as well. Also sand dune restoration, wetland restoration. Again, when we can really create strong coastlines that are resilient, they are going to be better able to handle storms, rising sea levels. We need to ensure that those systems are robust and that we're working to regenerate those systems. And so that's kind of what falls under coastal preservation, but there's definitely a whole lot more work under it as well. Also, there is, of course, plastic pollution, which I've discussed. This is probably the biggest focus of Surfrider Foundation. Uh, as we know, plastic is, like Chloe said, it's one of the biggest crises of our time. It threatens every part of our existence. And so this is a really big focus of Surfrider, again, in getting bans on single-use plastics, on working towards different policy mechanisms like EPR, which Chloe mentioned, uh, recycled content standards. Yeah, doing cleanups, working with youth, and really trying to get at this problem from a lot of different angles. There's also clean water. Uh, again, we actually focus, this is focused on around the world. Uh, we, our chapter Vancouver Island in Victoria, they do clean water projects as well. And the focus on this is working to eliminate water pollution. So in the forms of runoff from farms, uh, sewage, chemicals, all of these different things that are leaching into the ocean and again are bioaccumulating and biomagnifying in seafood and actually impacting, yeah, impacting the water so much that we can't even go and, and play in it, uh, recreate in it. A lot of places in the U.S. especially, their whole beaches will close down because of the amount of sewage. And so Surfrider is really trying to change that by through citizen science, taking collections of what collection samples of water and being able to make cases for water pollution. And then through those city councils, through the states, and then here in Canada, through the city councils and province, work to get um, infrastructure in place, such as waste management systems. Another really big part of this is the algae blooms in Florida. So the Surfrider chapters down there really work on this. And a lot of this is from the runoff from industrial farming that has worked to create these massive blooms that are 
incredibly, just incredibly toxic. I see the photos that come out of there and it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. But one really cool thing, just as a side note that I recently learned, there's a, a company called Bloom and they're taking this algae, they're harvesting it and turning it into foam for running shoes to replace this really toxic plastic foam. And again, we actually do find a lot of shoes. So this is kind of <laughs> two ways, cleaning up pollution, creating a product, and then we're not having to use that plastic. So there's actually a lot of really cool innovations that are able to harvest pollution, take it, and then turn it into a circular product that can be biodegraded, that can be kept in use through cradle-to-cradle design. And that, I think, is really, really awesome. I recently learned about that, so I had to share it. I thought that was really neat. The last focus area is ocean protection, and this is very wide as well, like coastal preservation. And so a lot of this is work on oil infrastructure. So in the States, there's a lot of issues with offshore oil drilling. And so it's working to combat offshore oil drilling and see that those companies can't get those permits to do that type of drilling off of the coast. And so in Canada, this would also be included in this would be pipelines and tanker traffics, tanker traffic, which we also actively advocate against. Brilliant. I love the term circular systems. I'm Thinking about the plastic system and organizations like we had uh, David from Plastic Bank on not long ago and what's happening with the recycling, but is that a long-term solution? I mean, should we be using plastic at all? Can't we, a lot of sand, we could make glass, you know, that, that takes energy, of course, to do, but is recycling a temporary or do you think it's a long-term like remaking things over and over again. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think with anything we do, there's an impact. And I think assessing the actions and activities we decide to do need to be carefully evaluated and compared. As you said, the glass recycling is incredibly energy intensive. I think recycling, that's a good point. I mean, I think recycling does play a piece in the puzzle. I don't think it should be relied on as the ultimate solution, but I think in order to, to really stimulate the circular economy, we do need that processing capability. And that's one of the reasons why so much pollution exists is because the, those infra that infrastructure just doesn't exist. British Columbia is in a really unique position where we have those EPR systems, we have collection in place, and there's still leakage. So I think recycling, as in taking plastic and then converting it back into a usable item with a long-term lifespan with it, I think falls in line with what we wanna be creating with the circular economy. But a lot of these single-use, non-recyclable, incredibly problematic plastics that leak out into our natural environment despite our best efforts of collection need to be stopped. Not just the plastic, it's the chemicals that get released from the plastic too. It's, it's yep. much bigger than just plastic. I mean, yep. I don't see why we can't like have milk cartons made out of coconut that you can eat the coconut after you have the milk or, you know, something that's more natural and you'd have the thing of growing a lot of coconuts and how do you do that but still something that stays just to interject there like what you're saying you know we could create this coconut husk but then we'd have to deal with the husk there's always going to be that management you know any packaging anything we're producing needs that whole life cycle analysis which is not being done right now the beginning to end of any product is not being considered 
maybe that's an overstatement. I know there are people trying, <laughs> but as a general norm, that is not being considered. The cheap plastic products coming over from China, I highly doubt there's any thought given to its afterlife. And the responsibility then is put on the consumer. So it, we're really it's talking- Technology, you know, yeah. the mountains of computers and phones and all the things that planned obsolescence is part of our entire capitalist marketing ideology. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you nailed it right on the head there. That systemic overconsumption of resources and the complete mismanagement of those resources, that is the system that needs to change. That is the systemic illness of our society right now is this constant consumption and being fed these messages that we actually that we need to consume when really in reality we don't and it's all in support of this broken capitalistic system so when we talk about recycling yeah i think in a lot of ways it is a band-aid solution you know we need these short-term solutions as stepping stones so that we can build these circular systems which ultimately i think are going to be the way of the future if humanity is going to survive <laughs> and i don't mean to be dramatic about that but we are really on a precipice right now where every single action every single policy decision that happens today and in the next decade is going to determine the future of this planet and i and i think for the first time in history we as a humanity are in a place because of our population because of the impact and degradation we're creating on the planet that we are determining what happens to our planet and this, this allots enormous responsibility to, to really act from a place of awareness and with the comprehension of, of using the understanding of integrating systems and understanding our impact and how this affects those integrated systems. I think it's at an all time high right now, especially with the fact that there's so much access to knowledge through the internet. This creates such a deep responsibility for, for us as a humanity to act within sustainability. Well said. What I hear you saying really is that right now we need triage to stop the bleeding, but it's not the long-term solution. Mm -hmm. Lily's going to have to leave soon. So I, there's a couple questions I wanted to ask you before you have to go, Lily. One of them is about ghost fishing gear and underwater debris cleanup. Can you just talk about what that is and what work you're doing there? Yeah, Surfrider doesn't actually work too much on ghost fishing gear, but um, of course it's something that we certainly know about and we try to do a little bit on. So what essentially ghost fishing gear is, is again, because we don't have these circular systems in place where companies are responsible for the end of life of products um, and the very nature that, you know, you're out in the ocean, it's, it's stormy, a lot of places that aren't intending to lose gear, but they are, they're losing rope, nets, other infrastructure from their operations. And that's continuing to, to fish and continuing to impact all sea life. So even as an example here on the coast, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a baby humpback got caught in, in a net and it had to be rescued. And luckily it survived. Uh, people were able to help it, but unfortunately that's not the fate of a lot of animals who are dealing with this. I think with plastic pollution, a lot of people think of, of coastlines, of beaches, because that's what's in our periphery. That's what we see. But only 10% of the pollution is washing up onto the beaches. Most of it, most of it lies beneath 
the surface where it's not able to biodegrade. It's only photodegrading into smaller and smaller pieces, impacting all of the life in the oceans. And um, yeah, it's much, much harder to also remove. It takes a lot more specialized gear. It takes a lot more specialized operations to be able to go down into the depths of the oceans to remove all of this gear. So earlier this year, we really wanted to bring attention to this. So we partnered with Emerald Sea Protection Society, whose sole focus is ghost fishing gear. And um, they came down to Tofino and off our first street dock, we did uh, a ghost fishing gear cleanup and we got tons of crab traps. We got about 40 tires, 20 shopping carts, um, all of which had life on them. So the aquarium came down and they, for hours, just removed animal after animal from every piece that we pulled up. And uh, even some of the, the traps had fish in them that were able to be rescued. Wow. And so, and that was just off one tiny little pocket and they didn't even get it off. They only had a few hours. And so it's, this, this problem is immense. It's probably the biggest that we are facing is what is in the oceans and continuing to break down. And as Chloe mentioned, what really needs to happen is that the manufacturers of plastic equipment need to be made responsible for the end of life of, of that equipment. And so some of the things that we've advocated for in regards to EPR, the fishing and aquaculture, is of course that EPR be expanded to include them. And then a whole bunch of different mechanisms can fall underneath that. You know, for instance, is that there would be free collection services set up at wharves and uh, harbor authorities, First Nation communities, where fishermen, aquaculture, fishing and aquaculture companies, once their gear is, is damaged or they're not able to use it anymore, they can recycle it free of charge. And so that is one thing that I know would make a massive difference. I know here on the coast, we get tons of emails and people contacting us from the fishing and aquaculture who just don't know what to do with that gear anymore. They're remote, it's hard to move around. Again, we lack the recycling infrastructure for, for those items. Right now we're sending it all to Chloe, which is amazing that we have that. But the amount of material is just, it's, it's unfathomable. Lily, there's another area, but I know you need to go, and I think I'll give it to Chloe, but you talk a lot about wastewater funding, which we haven't talked about at all. So I'm going to let you go, and thank you so much for being on Conversations and for your amazing work and all of the Surfrider organization, which you represent. It's just uh, so great to know that you're out there and with all your energy and youth and activity making things happen and joining forces in a, in a real team of people around the world it it really is uh, inspiring to hear what you're up to oh thank you michael and like i said thanks for having us on the show a really big part of the change is having these conversations and and getting the word out there and really learning from each other it's we have a, we're up against a lot but we have such an incredible opportunity and i think it's bringing us closer together more than ever before so thank you for for making that happen and for all that you do as well blessings we'll talk soon bye bye so chloe you want to pick that up because i it, it is a huge area even more so in other countries you're heading to panama there are so many places where wastewater is going right into the ocean. The impact of that, the impact on the coral reefs and the fish life, and you know, just give us a little idea of what's happening and what Ocean Legacy, your organization, is looking at and how you're addressing that. 
Um, well, actually, Lily would probably, as you said, would probably be the best person to tackle that question, just because we haven't been doing a lot of uh, wastewater sampling. But it does play a massive role in killing the coral reefs, as well as, you know, really creating waterborne pollution that then enters into a lot of the food sources of a lot of people. I, I can tell you that when plastic enters the water, it becomes it acts as almost this little sponge. And a lot of you know, the industrial runoff, agricultural runoff that comes into the water, a lot of the persistent organic pollutants, these little sponges then start to suck up this pollution and they act as then these toxic sponges. At that point, they get you know, ingested by fish, which then gets bioaccumulated in their tissues. And then as humans fish for the fish and eat that protein source, it becomes then bioaccumulated in our own tissues. And this scarily enough is being passed down through breast milk into our children. And then at a very young age, we have these kids that are then being pumped full of, of persistent organic pollutants. And, and I mean, there's ways that people can shed those, those persistent organic pollutants in their body by eating sunflower seeds and seaweed and things like that to help rid those toxins. But it's a massive problem. I mean, I was just reading a study the other day that 97% of children tested have all had were found to have plastic in their bloodstream. It's just incredibly scary stuff. Um, not only does it affect uh, human health, the uh, bird species that have been tested have weaker immune systems. It weakens species in general, their health. And then again, it does completely relate to the degradation of our coral reefs that are now disintegrating at an alarming rate. Tell people why that's important, the coral reefs. Yeah, the coral reefs are home to some of the largest biodiversity in, on the planet. They act, basically, they're a living organism, and they're a crucial component of ecosystem health. So when we have this coral bleaching, or a lot of this is coming from the acidification of our ocean, so the ocean also acts as a massive carbon sink. Um, so with this influx of carbon into our atmosphere, our oceans are probably some of the most vulnerable ecosystems that are absorbing those carbon sources. And that really is devastating countless species in our oceans. And, and I think what you were saying before, 95% of all large fish are, are gone now. I know tuna stocks are in the same boat. It's scary stuff. And without us changing, systematically changing our practices, it's going to get worse. But I mean, in saying that, there's still 5% left. There's still that chance that things can rebound. And, and I believe it can happen if the tools and mechanisms are there, the political will, will is there to create these changes. Ah, so many issues. <laughs> yeah, and, and I just, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about the derelict gear because Ocean Legacy is really focused on this issue right now, actually. So we've been uh, working a lot with industry right now, hands-on, to address a lot of these mountains of gear that we're finding all around the province of British Columbia. So as Lily was saying, there's very little up until now solution to deal with these mountains of plastic, discarded plastic from the, the aquaculture and fishing industry um, because it's contaminated with organic matter um, or impregnated in the plastic with this organic matter. 
and the, so the recycling industry won't touch it with you know a 10 foot pole because of its contamination it's also can be photo degraded it's a massive problem and and a lot of the processing doesn't exist so what we get is storage shoreline storage so we get people just leaving their gear out, getting washed back into the ocean. And then they it basically creates these tumbleweeds where species in the ocean get wrapped around these ropes and plastics, and it ultimately, unfortunately, ends up in, into their peril. So what we're doing right now is identifying where a lot of these collection plastic hotspots are around the province, and we're working with companies to clean these up. And we were awarded a grant by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans this year, which is the first bit of federal funding I think any of the nonprofits have seen in such a large sum to come and to start addressing the whole problem of derelict gear. So we've been working now with Fannie Bay Oysters and uh, the BC Shellfish Growers Association to start taking all the, just starting with oyster baskets, as simple as that. I mean, there's tens of thousands around the province and what are people doing with them? They're just sitting in yards. You know, people don't want to pay for the disposal fees of them and recyclers won't take them. So Ocean Legacy right now has been the only <laughs> recycling option for these materials. So we're slowly, literally picking away at these mountains of discarded or uh, contaminated plastic to try and breathe new life into these plastics and create basically something long-term, a long-term product with them that can be resold and re-entered and to stimulate the Canadian circular economy. Mm, another huge issue. I want to ask you a question. We're getting close to the end of our interview, but I don't know if you can answer it in less than an hour, but... <laughs> <laughs> so I would like you to explain to people the hydraulic system, how it works. Explain the cycle and how that relates to also global warming and the uh, currents that are there and how it relates to our fresh water so people can understand how it's connected because I know you're really into circulating systems and that's <laughs> one of our main circulating systems. Just right. like circulating system in the body, it's, it's the same, same exact thing in a way. I think everything on the planet will give off of evaporation of moisture. And you know, our forests, this is why our forests play such a huge role is because the moisture coming off the leaves, when the sun hits that, it starts to evaporate up into our atmosphere. Um, we have the same thing happening on our ocean surfaces. We have this evaporation, this perspiration that's coming up into the atmosphere. And this is what's forming the clouds that are then providing the water source to come back into the planet and recirculate. So with global climate change, even our soils are evaporating. Everything's giving off this perspiration. And I, I actually was uh, participating in a really interesting soil study where global climate change is shifting this entire cycle and it's changing. And other than the people assuming that it's going to be increasing the temperature, which would increase the precipitation or the evaporation, we don't really know what the long-term effects are going to be. So I was working on a soil study where we were looking at, uh, in a contained environment, increasing soil, the temperature of soil, over time from a projection of how we were anticipating it to change with global climate change. The results were dramatic. I mean, we saw that this was gonna completely release even higher amounts of carbon because we have the melting of the sea, 
the sea ice and the permafrost. And our oceans and our soils are the carbon sinks of our planet. And with this increase in temperature, all of these extra and the, uh, the deforestation of our planet, we're getting all of these extra carbon sources coming up into the atmosphere, which is completely changing the precipitation cycle, one which is very unpredictable. And we're seeing that now where rain was once seasonal um, and we could predict the, the, the start and, he and the end of heavy rains. These shifts are happening all over the planet where these seasons are acting out of, they're acting ir irregular. Yeah, I mean, it's the next decade is going to be incredibly interesting to see, you know, what decisions are going to be made to preserve the future of our humanity and planet, and also how our planet is going to respond to these changes, these climatic changes that are happening. Uh, so much more, Chloe Dubois, to talk about. I'm, I'm so grateful to you and uh, Ocean Legacy Foundation and Surfrider and all the energy and you know, you're putting your life into these. And it, I hope you're, that this show inspires more people to both support Surfrider and Ocean Legacy, but also to get involved, particularly in that way. Mm -hmm. so, um, it's great to have you kick off this first uh, youth activism series on conversations. We've had a lot of people like Bill McGibbon and all the old guys, Richard Heinberg and everybody over the years. Wonderful. Maybe Julia Butterfly was the, the youngest and <laughs> I always remember her saying, you know, about throwing things away. She said, where's away? And our oceans are not away. They're right there. Yet they're becoming the largest landfills on the planet. Such a delight to be with you and stay yeah. on the and just uh, much thanks for all of our listeners and from from us here at KBMR. Thank you. And thanks, thanks for having us and Lily and Surfrider as well. We really appreciate the opportunity. And as Lily was saying, it's these conversations that help uh, inspire change around the world. So we look forward to talking with you again. There will be so much to lose if we don't get them now and move. Get down with the movement. 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 This is our time to shine. I hope you're feeling ready. So everybody in the house start getting busy. Just like the way you know they cast the bus and we start moving. So everybody wake up. Get down with the movement. Get down with the movement. Calling all you. Get down with the movement. Calling all you. Get down with the movement. Calling all you. Get down, 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 down. We're talking to you. This is our time to shine. I hope you're feeling ready. So everybody in the house start getting busy. Just like the way you know they cast the bus and we start moving. So everybody wake up. Get down with the movement. Get down with the movement. Calling all you. Get down with the movement. Calling all you. Get down with the movement. Calling all you. Get